Welcome to the Good Chemistry Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today's episode is supported by Demetrix, a biotechnology company doing fascinating work using cutting-edge bioengineering techniques to create yeast cells that have the ability to produce cannabinoid compounds at an industrial scale. I spoke with Jeff Ubersachs, the CEO of Demetrix. Jeff has a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology from the University of California, San Francisco, and he was a postdoc at Stanford University. Jeff and I spoke about how his background in yeast molecular genetics enabled him to transition from academic science into the biotechnology industry, and how Demetrix is using cutting-edge techniques to engineer strains of yeast that produce specific cannabinoid compounds at a large scale. Jeff talked about the science of what makes this kind of biotechnology possible and why Demetrix has chosen to focus on cannabinoids specifically. Jeff also talked about what it was like for him to go from being an academic scientist to running a biotech company. And he provided a lot of great advice for graduate students and postdocs who might be thinking about that type of transition. As always, if you enjoy the content, please do like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. We also have a Patreon account. Uh, it's under Good Chemistry or Nick Jacomis. You can search for either of those. And patrons provide a monthly donation that's as little as $5 a month, and that helps keep the podcast completely ad-free. And with that, here's my conversation with Jeff Ubersachs. Jeff Ubersachs, thank you for joining me. Great to be here. So can you start off by just telling us a little bit about your scientific background and then what you're doing now? Sure. So <laughs> um, I have a PhD in yeast genetics and biochemistry from the University of California in San Francisco, which is about two blocks away from where I am today, um, <laughs> which is in my house in San Francisco. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always been fascinated with, you know, how cells do stuff and and how biology can make the world a better place so um was at ucsf for a number of years for my phd and then went to stanford where i was really working at the interface between biology and how you can use kind of some of the new technology that's out there in dna sequencing in automation tools and in computing tools to make the biology stuff go a lot faster um because ultimately you know i think what got me into science is that, you know, a lot of really cool things and, and great things for the world can happen with science. And how do you make science go faster so that it has more impact more quickly? And so um, pretty quickly realized that, you know, um, there was some cool science going on in industry outside of, you know, the academic world and, and knew a couple of the founders at a company called Amaris Biotechnologies um, and joined them in, boy, in very early 2008 as a yeast strain engineer. And there was really interested in, you know, how do you use yeast, which are super cool, um, to make products that the world needs and wants in, in a more sustainable way, in a more affordable way, in a way that, you know, increases, you know, purity, safety, reproducibility, all the kinds of stuff that you want. Um, and so it was there for a number of years, uh, almost 10. And then one of the founders of Amherst um, was Jay Keesling. He's a professor at UC Berkeley um, that I knew quite well. And he called me up one day and said, would you like to have coffee? <laughs> and I said, oh, this sounds fascinating. Uh, I'm not going to say no. Um, and so I had coffee with Jay and, and Jay said, you know, look, I have some really interesting results coming out of our lab on how you can get yeast to make this class of compounds called cannabinoids. Um, 
think it's really a great opportunity to start a new company and would love to have you come on board. And, and uh, what do you think? <laughs> and so after a couple of weeks of agonizing said, hey, this sounds like a fantastic new adventure. Um, you know, it's an opportunity to kind of run a company in the way I thought it should be run and um, jump right into a class of, you know, super interesting compounds that, you know, think have, you know, a lot of opportunity to improve people's health and wellness and, and make the world a better place. And that's, you know, ultimately what, you know, Jay was in it for, what I'm in for and what Demetrix is about. So the company that got started was called Demetrix. We've been um, around since, you know, September of 2017 at this point and um, are using yeast to uh, make rare cannabinoids um, for, all sorts of different applications in human health and wellness. And, um, you know, the, the more broad mission of the company is really to, you know, a, a lot of really cool and interesting and, and useful compounds are made in nature, um, in plants and other organisms that are present in really, really tiny amounts. And mm -hmm. that through using biotechnology and fermentation, there's opportunities to make them much more available and useful throughout the world. Hmm. So let's, Let's talk about yeast. So what are yeast and how do they, how are they normally used by humans? Yeah. So great question. So we use baker's yeast, same yeast people use in bread making and beer making and wine making, um, but are also used in a, a huge number of other products that people use around the world today. So um, yeast are these extremely cool microorganisms that people have been working with for, you know, over a hundred years at this point. And so our, you know, really, you know, their metabolism and genetics and genome and all that sort of stuff and the tools for editing them are, and getting them to do new things are, are quite sophisticated and advanced. And so, um, you know, have been a focus of a number of companies, including ours for how do you put, you know, DNA from other organisms, right? This is one of the coolest things about biology to me was that, you know, DNA is universal. So DNA is like, you know, people will call it the blueprints of life, right? It's really a string of letters of ATGs and Cs that basically tell every organism how to do the things that it does, right? And, and the cool thing about that is that you can figure out what parts of that DNA do different things. And then, you know, you can basically get that out of the organism or today you can just order it. You submit an electronic file to somebody like twist or other companies, and they'll send you that string of DNA. Um, and you can put it into other organisms like yeast. And now those yeast do the thing that the plant used to do. Um, and so, you know, to give people a sense, like, you know, on the cannabinoid side, you know, yeast are tiny. So, you know, some of the most beautiful structures that we've seen out of the plant world are, in my opinion, at least are, are trichomes, right? Mm -hmm. They're these, you know, beautiful kind of stalks that have this beautiful globular head at the top and they're, they're full of oils and all sorts of, you know, useful products that plants make, not just in cannabinoids, but a lot of plant products end up in, in the trichomes and you can fit about a thousand yeast cells in every one of those trichomes. Hmm. Right. And so, um, one of the challenges with getting a lot of these rare natural products out of plants is that you need to grow a lot of that plant biomass to actually get enough of that product to actually do stuff with, uh, even to study it, to figure out what it does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can imagine if you can take yeast that, you know, where thousands of them could fit in a single trichome, all of a sudden you have an opportunity now to make a lot more of that product and make it a lot more kind of available for, you know, all the things that need to happen to really understand what they do and how they can be helpful to the world. Interesting. So, so yeast are single celled microorganisms. Yep. And they're basically their job is in the world 
and they've been used for you know six thousand years or more um, to basically you feed them sugar and they produce carbon dioxide and alcohol and that's how people have used them for a really long time um, and you know they also make more cells and so you know what we do basically is change some of the DNA or put new things in there and, and modify some of the DNA that's in the yeast cell to, to basically now take sugar and not make ethanol, but make new products, right? Mm. Um, and secrete them into, you know, the fermentation media that we grow them in, which is just, you know, like a, a, a nutritional broth. Um, and then you can purify the product out of there at the end of the day. And, you know, in theory, be able to have, you know, higher purity products, more reproducible products, because you're not dealing with some of the, you know, other weather and rain and, and soil conditions of mm -hmm. agriculture. So you can, you know, have more reproducible, more pure product at the end of the day. So the idea is yeast naturally eat sugar and they yep. produce ethanol as a waste product. And we sort of just take that waste product, the ethanol, and we use it to, to make alcohol. For beer and wine, or beer and wine. You use the carbon dioxide, right? For your rising bread. Right, oh yeah, as an example. Yeah. Yep. And so you're saying that you guys can engineer yeast so that instead of producing ethanol and CO2 as a waste product, it, they produce whatever you want, basically. That's the idea. And so you know that sounds super easy. It's actually really really hard. <laughs> um, but basically, you know, if you can understand how other organisms like plants um, or other microbes make products, then you know what are the DNA parts that they need to you know instruct their cells to make those products if you can identify what those dna sequences are you can recode them and put them into your yeast cell and now that yeast cell will start making some of that product right mm -hmm. usually it's it starts at a very tiny amount mm -hmm. and it requires you know a, a bunch of um work and and sometimes years of work to really get them to start making kind of commercially you know interesting amounts of that product right so i see at, at this point, you know, the world has probably made, you know, a thousand different compounds that plants make in yeast, right? But very few of them are not, you know, necessarily at the scale that you would want them to be at to make them kind of commercially relevant. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's really what there's a whole industry out there that some people would call synthetic biology or industrial biotechnology that's really aiming at taking, you know, those yeast cells and making it so it's making, you know, tiny amounts like milligrams to how's it, how do you get them to start making metric tons per year, which is what is really kind of necessary to make, you know, have the impact on people in the world that you kind of need to have. I see. So where the field is at, if I'm understanding is yeast cells. So yeast geneticists can basically engineer yeast to produce any compound more or less, but they're not necessarily going to produce that compound at a level, at a scale that you want it to. Yep. So all the work is at how do you get the yeast to produce a lot of something? Yeah. And, and, you know, there's lots of, you know, things underneath that, but, you know, and what I'd say to kind of put a little bit more nuance on it is that there's certain types of chemistry mm -hmm. that, you know, people like synthetic organic chemistry is really good at. And there's another type of chemistry that biology is really good at. Mm -hmm. And this, the type of chemistry that biology does is oftentimes very hard for what the synthetic organic chemists do, right? And so what most people are doing are trying to, you know, harness that chemistry of cells and the chemistry of life, you might call it, to make, you know, the products that 
are coming from other natural organisms like plants, right? Or, or mm -hmm. other microbes like antibiotics is another good example where, you know, people or, or insulin is another good example, right? Where people have, those are molecules that would be very expensive to make through synthetic organic chemistry, but that, you know, organisms in fermentation can do really well because the chemistry is just really fits the chemistry of the cell really fits well into making those types of products. Mm -hmm. And so are you guys focused on cannabinoids specifically? That's where we're starting. Yep. Um, and, you know, I think that there's just, it, it feels to me like a once in a kind of career opportunity <laughs> um, with cannabinoids, because there's kind of been a convergence of, of, you know, regulatory changes, as well as, you know, some of the science that's happened to understand how do plants make these products. Mm -hmm. And the combination of those two things have really opened up, you know, a potential for a, a, a very, you know, interesting class of natural products that haven't been really available or well studied to be, you know, to, to study them, to say, what can they do? How are they different? And, and so I should step back and say, one of the things that we're really focused on is the rare cannabinoids, right? Mm -hmm. So the major cannabinoids, most people are familiar with is THC and CBD. The mm -hmm. plant makes, you know, uh, more than a hundred other cannabinoids that haven't near, you know, been studied nearly as, as much, but that because they've been present at such small, small, small amounts in the plant. Mm -hmm. So um, what we've done is, you know, basically made some of those and then, you know, are working to understand, okay, what do they do? What does their safety profiles look like? What do their efficacy profiles look like? How are the, how can we use these things in everything from, you know, skincare products to foods and beverages, to supplements, to even pharmaceutical ingredients to, you know, improve people's lives. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So before we get into the specifics on the cannabinoids, one more question about the basic biology I have and what I presume is an engineering problem with, with this whole area or an engineering challenge that you have to get around. So the plants have evolved to produce these cannabinoids for their own purposes. They put them or they, they secrete them from the cells at the top of the trichomes. And they're, my understanding is they're actually purposefully away from the other <laughs> plant cells because these compounds can be toxic actually. So do the yeast tolerate them well, or do you have to engineer the yeast to, to play well with the cannabinoids? Yeah. So it's, it's a bit of everything, right? So <laughs> that's a great question actually. Um, so, you know, a lot of the work that we do is to, um, you know, do two things. One is to kind of make the plant parts like the enzymes and proteins from the plant that we're using in the yeast work better in the yeast environment, mm -hmm. right? Cause the yeast is, looks very different than the tip of a trichome, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a very different, it's an oily thing versus, you know, a whole cell in a fermentation media. Um, the second part is that we're also trying to engineer the yeast cell to look a little bit more like the trichome, right? Like mm -hmm. the plant cell so that, you know, you kind of then are approaching the problem from both ends to then make enough product that it's commercially relevant. And one of the, the it, you know, challenges that you say is sometimes those, those products are toxic to the yeast cell. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, the nice thing about cannabinoids is they're not super toxic um, to the yeast cell. And even if there are, there are certain types of, you know, fermentation processes that you can put in place that help, you know, relieve that toxicity. And you can also evolve yeast cells to be more resistant to whatever toxicity you know, those compounds are causing, mm -hmm. you know, the one thing I'll say with cannabinoids in particular is they're not particularly, all, you know, super soluble in water. So you don't necessarily in the fermentations, you don't necessarily build up a whole lot of kind of like soluble cannabinoid. It tends to kind of 
you know, aggregate out of the fermentation broth and, and be with the cells in a way that's a lot less toxic likely. Hmm. And so why did you guys um, pick yeast? Is it just because of the genetic toolkit that's available for yeast or yep. are there, could you do this in other microbes? So there, there, are, there are other ways to do it. There are other organisms that people are working with. Um, the reason we've chosen yeast is, is, you know, a couple of reasons. One is, you know, the tool set has been developed over the you know, the decades is really outstanding and it mm -hmm. makes the engineering part really, really um, a lot more easy than it was, you know, even 10 or 20 years ago and much easier than it is for some of these other organisms. Um, the second part is that the, the type of chemistry that kind of has to go into making cannabinoids are things that other people have had success doing in yeast, mm -hmm. right? So the class of enzymes that that are the plant uses to make these products, um, have been, you know, similar types of enzymes have been used in yeast to, to make similar types of products. And so, um, you know, there are other people that are doing it in E. coli, which is bacteria. There's other people doing it in algae. And, you know, our bet is on yeast. And, and we think that because of the prior success in the toolkit in yeast, it's, it's the, you know, a great choice for going forward with this product mm -hmm. or these types of products. So which, um, which cannabinoids have you guys started making first? Yep. So the first one we made is kind of the, uh, it's called cannabigerol or CBG. Um, and so the plant actually makes CBGA, the acid form of that. And that's actually what the yeast makes. And then you can get it decarboxylated. So we're making, you know, in some ways we're making both CBGA and CBG. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, you know, uh, beyond that, you know, we've got other products that are kind of in the development pipeline and, and those are, you know, other minor cannabinoids where, you know, I think where we see, them to be different than CBG and providing different types of, you know, effects on or impacts on people and what different applications they might be useful in so mm -hmm. that we're not necessarily just making, you know, a, a, another CBG like molecule that does the same thing. Cause that's not actually what the world needs. The world, you know, we should be exploring the diversity of the plant and, and finding the parts that are doing, you know, different things for people so that we're bringing, you know, the most benefit out of the plant into to people's lives is kind of mm -hmm. how we think about it. And do we, what do we, what do we know about CBG and CBGA at this point? Yep. So not as much as the world probably would like <laughs> or, or would need. Um, and so, you know, this is the issue with a lot of these rare cannabinoids is that they just, you know, first, because the plant was a scheduled substance for so long, mm -hmm. it was very hard to do some of the fundamental science of what do these things do. The second part is that um, it's very hard to get access to a lot of the rare cannabinoids because they aren't very they're, they're, there's not much of them in the plant mm -hmm. and the chemistry to make them is hard and expensive. Like the, the human chemistry, right? The mm -hmm. synthetic organic chemistry is hard and expensive to do. And so, you know, I think it's only in the last couple of years with kind of some of the changes on the regulatory front with the rare cannabinoids that are non-psychoactive that, you know, there's an opportunity to use a combination of biology and chemistry to really start exploring what all these other cannabinoids kind of do. Right. And so we've invested a lot of our own time and resources in doing the type of actual hardcore science that you need to do to understand what these things are going to do in your body and on your body. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so what are their safety profiles look like? What are the efficacy, you know, wh where might they be useful in different types of products? And so some of these things are things like you know, G protein coupled receptor assays or ion channel assays to figure out, you know, 
what type of receptors are these things acting on in your body and how are different cannabinoids hitting different receptors in different ways so that you can then, you know, and that gives you both a sense of what their, you know, safety profile looks like, because there's certain, you know, receptors in your body that you definitely don't want to be touching because mm-hmm. they'll do really bad things. <laughs> um, and there's other places where you'd say, okay, this is, you know, looks like it's hitting a bunch of, you know, receptors that might be useful in things like inflammation or, mm-hmm. um, in things like, you know, uh, anti-inflammatory is one of the big areas that we're looking at, but, you know, there's a whole bunch of other ones as well that we're, we're, we've been investigating. So, and, so you guys are doing like the receptor binding assays and all that stuff as well. Yep. Um, because you know, our philosophy, like, I think that that's really, you know, sometimes you'll hear people talk about like the cannabinoid space is kind of like the wild, wild west. And, you know, to, to some extent that's true. And what's driving that is that there's not really a good understanding of what these things do and what they can do. And that the Mm -hmm. science, our, our philosophy is like, you know, we need to be using the science to understand what these things are, what they are good for you know, that they're safe to be able to have the impacts that we think that we want to bring to the world and the world ultimately needs. Right. So, um, and, and interestingly enough, it's also very consistent with what, you know, a lot of the regulatory regular regulators of this space want to see as well. So we work very closely with the FDA as an example to mm-hmm. have, you know, to help them understand, you know, what we're doing and help them understand how, you know, these products like cannabinoids in particular can be regulated under existing laws for how and regulatory frameworks for how you know natural products make their way into all sorts of products whether it's consumer products or or pharmaceutical ingredients and um you know they are super important organizations right because they're there to protect human health and wellness Mm -hmm. and and to you know they've been very excited to see people actually doing the hardcore science and and willing to work with them through their existing frameworks to do all the stuff that needs to be done to show these things are first safe for skincare applications like topical applications and then ultimately ingestibles um whether that's in the pharmaceutical side food and beverage or on you know kind of the supplement side they're excited to see people actually willing to engage with them and do that hard work to you know really understand what these things do and what they're mm-hmm. good for. And so because you guys are focused on the the minor cannabinoids and you're not focused on THC, does that mean that you're largely um, free of the red tape that would come from doing anything with a schedule one substance? Yeah. So, you know, and we started in 2017 kind of before the farm bill. And so we also mm. have a registration with the DEA, right. To work with schedule one substances. Cause a lot of these things were schedule one substances a while back. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, the, the, change in the regulatory has been with the farm bill that if you're making, you know, cannabinoids or phytocannabinoids that are, um, you know, have a THC content less than 0.3%, then you're falling outside of the schedule one substances, um, aspect of, you know, of THC and cannabis. And so, um, it does free up a lot of that, you know, it's just much more, much easier to work with them and, and, you know, be regulated as other types of ingredients would be regulated through the FDA. Mm -hmm. And, um, to the extent that you can talk about it, what, what other cannabinoids have you started to look at? You mentioned, and I I really like the strategy you mentioned, you know, starting with CBG, but then also specifically trying to look at cannabinoids that are very likely to have relatively distinct 
pharmacological properties. Have you found any interesting? Yeah. So, so I'll speak in general terms first. So, you know, the way that most of these molecules have an impact on your body is, is that they, you know, bind different receptors or other mm -hmm. proteins in your cells and, you know, what kind of dictates which of those things they're binding to is the shape of the molecule, mm -hmm. right? So in general, we look at kind of different scaffolds that cannabinoids make, right? So there's like the kind of natural endocannabinoid scaffold, which is like these long chain kind of loopy things. And then there's, you know, CBG, which has like a phenolic ring and then two tails that hang off. And then there's, you know, CBD and THC, which are, you know, ring structures that are sometimes double rings. Um, and then there's CBC as well, which has, mm -hmm. you know, another type of double ring structure. And those we kind of classify as different scaffolds, right? Mm -hmm. And so those different scaffolds are a big part of what drives how they interact differently in your body, right? So when we were looking at it, you know, a couple of years back, we said, you know, look, what are the kind of different scaffolds that we should be thinking about? And how do we, you know, think that we might be able to approach making them through, you know, fermentation and biotechnology and, and then, you know, test them to see what they're, they're good and different for. So, so, you know, the structures is part of what we use in deciding to go after the products, but ultimately we make them and then we test them in some of these more functional assays like GPCR receptors or ion channels or, or other kind of functional assays like in vitro functional assays, um, to say, you know, how are they the same and how are they different? Mm -hmm. And that kind of drives, then we go, okay, we kind of think about, okay, how hard are these things to make? And if they're, you know, super duper hard and they require, you know, a couple different, you know, 15 different enzymatic steps and a bunch of those enzymes aren't identified from the plant on how those things are made. We say, you know, that would be really hard for us to approach and be really expensive. So maybe we'll leave that one for later mm -hmm. <laughs> and focus on ones where, you know, keeping the end in mind, they have to be affordable and, and something that we can make to, to, to have, you know, to bring them to the market. That's kind of one of the things that we need to think about. So that's one of the first kind of filters for how we think about which ones to go after. And then it, after we have, you know, that we say, okay, and then what do they actually do and how are they the same or different? And we try to find ones that are different from each other that still have, you know, interesting applications in, in human health and wellness. And that's kind of how we think about filtering it down from, you know, hundred, hundred plus different cannabinoids in the plant to these are the product one, two, three, four that we're going to go after. Mm -hmm. And for, you know, in terms of CBG or whatever one is the best optimized to be produced the most from the yeast cells, can you give us a sense for scale? How much CBG can you produce compared right. to say <laughs> the plant? That's a, a really good question. So um, let me think about the best way to answer that one for a second. So, you know, one of the let, let's dive in a little bit and talk about fermentation because that mm -hmm. kind of is the first place to, to start. Right. And so what do we do with fermentation? Right. So ultimately it starts with a single yeast cell, right. That you've, you've generated through, you know, advanced molecular genetic techniques. So you've put in, you know, a bunch of these plant things and, and you've also optimized the host cell. Mm -hmm. So the yeast cell to, you know, as I said earlier, kind of look more like, you know, the trichome or plant cell and those enzymes that you put in look more like the kinds of things that yeast are used to seeing, but still do the same thing they do in the plant. So you start with a single cell and then you have to grow that, right? A single yeast cell doesn't make a lot. It's tiny, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, you can't see it without a microscope. It's about, you know, 10 microns big. It's not a very big cell. Um, and so you put it on a plate, 
uh, agar dish and it grows into a colony. A colony is, you know, a, a whole bunch of cells, like 10 to the eight cells or 10 to the 10th cells. You can then scrape that and you put it in a flask. That flask mm -hmm. kind of grows up over time. So you give it sugar, you give mm -hmm. it oxygen, it eats the sugar, it makes ethanol, carbon dioxide, and also more cells, right? So you keep growing it bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you reach a scale where glass flasks no longer work because you can't make, you know, a hundred thousand liter flask. They just, mm -hmm. you couldn't do it. Uh, and so then people move over to what are called fermenters or bioreactors. And these are just larger vessels that supply, you know, air, sugar, and, um, that's basically it, a nutrient to these cells to allow them to continue to grow and now start produce your producing your molecule. And so, you know, the way that this works is that in the laboratory that we have in Berkeley, we go up to about 10 liters of fermentation production, right? And, um, you know, the typical way that people kind of think about how much product you're making out of these fermenters is by talking about something called titer. So titer is the um, like the grams of your product mm -hmm. that you've made per liter of your fermentation, right? And so typically in the biotechnology space, you know, people have brought products to the market that are anywhere from, you know, their titers are anywhere from like one gram per liter up to, you know, over a hundred grams per liter, right? So uh, a liter is about a thousand grams. So if you're at you know, if you're at, you know, hundred grams per liter, 10% of your fermenter is your product, right? Mm. That's a lot. There aren't actually that many products that are kind of in that space. Most of them are, are down in the, call it the, I, I don't know, like the one to 25 gram per liter range is typically where people would be. And so from that, you can say, okay, if I had, you know, a thousand liter fermenter and my titers were at 10 grams per liter, I'm making, you know, basically 10 kilograms in that thousand liter fermenter. Um, and, and that's just what's in the kind of fermentation broth. The next step that you have to then do is you have to purify it out, right? And that's tricky and hard and oftentimes something that people don't think a lot about. It's like, mm -hmm. how do you get this back out of the fermentation broth? And so that's what we call downstream purification or DSP. And um, that typically has an efficiency anywhere from, you know, call it 25% all the way up to, you know, call it 80 or 90% in the best mm -hmm. kind of fermentation. So if you're at, let's just say you're at 50%, that means 50% of the product that's in that fermentation broth, you're able to recover the rest kind of goes down the drain. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, from, again, from that thousand liter fermenter, if you're at 10 grams per liter, you're making, you know, 10,000 grams, which is 10 kilograms. And then you've got 50% recovery at the end of the day, you're only making, you're making about five kilograms per thousand liters. Hmm. Right. And so, so there's, so there's two ahead. basic steps here just to make sure I'm following. So yep. if, if you were thinking analogously to the plant world, someone would be growing a bunch of plants and that, yep. that plant would be producing trichomes that produce cannabinoids. You guys are putting yeast cells into giant tubs, essentially giving them sugar, giving them oxygen. The yeast are then growing, multiplying, kicking out a fair amount of cannabinoids as well. So, so the giant tubs of yeast are analogous to growing a plant, basically. Yep. And the second step is getting the cannabinoid from, you know, purifying it from those cells, which would be analogous to doing a plant extraction. That's right. And in the fermentations, these products, at least for this product class, are outside of the cell already. But they're they typically mm. because their solubility in water is so low, and yeast grow in water. Um, you know, you need to. They're associated with the kind of because cells are 
you know, kind of lipids with carbohydrate cell walls. That's what cells or yeast cells have. So that looks more like what cannabinoid looks like. So cannabinoid kind of sticks around in that, like in like the, the non-soluble phase, which includes cells and your product. And so you can basically do like a, a what's called a liquid solid centrifugation where you centrifuge, which is just to spin, to separate mm-hmm. the liquid phase from the solid phase. And then you almost have something that like you think is very analogous to the plant world, which is like, we've got, you know, plant biomass, and we've got cannabinoid. How do we mm-hmm. get that out? And so, you know, the DSP process in many cases is with some sort of extraction, oil extraction, or, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways you can get it out of there um, that you can then do, you know, further purification on down the line through crystallization or other types of tools. Mm-hmm. And in the plant world, you know, when you're growing the plants, harvesting them, and especially if you're doing extractions for making concentrated products, you often have to worry about things like residual solvents from the extraction mm-hmm. process. You have to worry about pesticides maybe that, that were used to help facilitate growth of the plant. Is there anything like that that you have to worry about when you're engineering these compounds to come out of yeast? Right. So that's one of the coolest things about fermentation is, A, you don't have to deal with a lot of the kind of pesticides or you know heavy metals or other types of stuff that come through with that. Um, certainly like, you know, organic like residual solvents and stuff mm-hmm. like that is something that everybody should be concerned about that that is something that er- anybody who's doing any type of purification process whether it's you know from you know cannabis plants hemp plants or or from you know you know even making you know pharmaceutical ingredients oftentimes use you know organic extractions during you know the chemical synthesis so you know residual solvents is always something that everybody's going to be paying attention to it's something that yeah we we pay attention to um I think the advantage of doing it from yeast is that typically, you know, kind of like the product being made um, to, you know, the biomass is just a lot greater and mm-hmm. uh, you, you're not extracting a lot of the other things that you typically extract during like a plant extraction, like polyphenols and waxes and a whole bunch of other stuff. Like yeast just doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. And so the product that you get at, at the end of the year, purification process, you know, when we first got into this and we started talking about cannabinoids, you know, we were talking about, you know, um, you know, basically high purity product and, and, you know, people would be like, you know, our, our product is pure. And they'd be like, well, what does that mean? Cause in the cannabinoid world, pure oftentimes means, you know, greater than 90%, we might call it pure and greater than 98 or 99%, then you have an isolate. And we're like, well, then we have an isolate because <laughs> uh, what we're used to in the fermentation world is, you know, purity over you know, is typically over 98 or 99% pure. Um, we just call it pure. And, and that's what we're used to calling it. So entering into the plant world where, where there's both this purity and isolate word was, you know, confusing to us at first, but we really quickly adapted to that. And so we basically make product at the end of the day, that's, you know, greater than 98, 99% pure out of these fermentations. And can you give us a sense for time? So when you're growing the plants, I'm not a grower, but you're you're talking about months of time to go from seed to plant to harvest and do the whole thing. What's the time frame for this type of approach? Yeah. So it's usually about a week um, to go from, you know, that kind of single cell or colony all the way up to, Hey, we've got, you know, typically we think about when you're talking about commercial scale production, we're typically talking about hundred thousand liters or so. And so hmm. to give you a sense of scale, you know, hundred thousand liter fermenter is probably about, you know, 20 to 30 meters tall. So hmm. it's, it's big. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of, of, of volume. Uh, and uh, you know, so what we get out of that at the end of the day, you know, is hundreds of kilograms of product 
that you then run through the purification process. Um, and you know, that end to end process, typically, you know, the fermentation might take a week and then the purification takes another week. And sometimes, you know, that's about, then, then you, there might be shipping and logistics and all that sort mm -hmm. of stuff, but it's generally like a one to two week process. Mm -hmm. Wow. And what is, what does pure cannabinoid look like? So it depends on the cannabinoid <laughs> is the answer. Um, so like pure CBG looks like a white crystal, which is very, very cool. Um, there's others that look more, that are hard to get crystals of. They, they're mm -hmm. more oils. Um, and so it just depends again on the shape and the structure of the molecule oftentimes, you know, drives the chemical, what, what that looks like in its pure form. But CBG, I mean, that was one of the coolest things for us is that, you know, <laughs> one of the hard things with science is that, um, you know, what you do oftentimes doesn't have like a physical or tangible thing that you can touch and say, I did that, right? Mm -hmm. It's more esoteric and it's more like, hey, I learned something new that nobody else in the world may have known before. And that's fun and rewarding in its own way. But to actually go from, you know, a, a scientist, a, like a project where we started, you know, from no lab in 2017, like nothing, we were working out of you know, somebody's dining room. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, to a point where, you know, three years later, we were running, you know, 15,000 liter fermentations and making, you know, kilograms of product that you could actually see. They're like buckets of products that are, you know, highly pure crystalline CBG. Like that is super rewarding to say, mm -hmm. we actually made that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, that is cool. And so you make, so there's the fermentation step, there's the purification step. You end up literally in the case of CBG with buckets of crystal kilogram quantities, where does it go from there? What types of places, what types of companies are you guys actually selling the product to? Is it people doing clinical research? Is it people making consumable products? Is it all the above? Right. So um, what I'll say about that is we're not actually selling product yet, right? So okay. um, you're just and, developing and the tech? We're, we're developing the fermentation, the purification technology and starting to build those commercial relationships, right? And, and a big part of this is understanding you know, what we have and what it's good for and, mm -hmm. you know, doing all the safety trials. So, so actually those first kilograms of product are things that we, you know, are using to do all the types of safety studies that folks like the FDA require you to do, right? Mm -hmm. So some of these are, are, you know, typically when you talk about fermentation ingredients coming to the market, the, the way that they come to the market is through, you know, a couple different pathways with the FDA. So if you're going into food and beverages, you generally are doing what's called a, a, general, a generally recognized as safe notification with the FDA. And that requires, you know, a large amount of toxicology and safety studies first, where you're doing kind of long-term studies at, at reasonably high doses, typically in rodents like rats, mm -hmm. to show that, you know, if I do 90 or 180 days of, of high dose treatments of these things, that those rats aren't going to be, you know, having, you know, tumors or other types of things that, that really prove that these things are safe. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that takes a significant amount of product and is where a lot of companies would typically bring some of their first, you know, kilograms that they're making. The second part I would say is that, you know, we have gotten to the point where we're sending samples though, of these products out to, and the samples range from, you know, call it a gram to, you know, hundreds of grams of product mm -hmm. to, um, you know, all sorts of kind of the first applications that many people are talking about going for is, 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 uh, topical applications in skincare and consumer mm -hmm. products, because, um, you know, the, the, the regulatory threshold for those is kind of the easiest to get through. It's basically you have to do, you know, 
irritation of skin and eye testing mm-hmm. as an example, right? And, and those are relatively straightforward, short-term studies, not, you know, half a year type of studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, where we've started. And so have been prioritizing samples going out to, you know, v- very large, you know, global conglomerates all the way down to, you know, smaller independent brands that are, you know, really interested in the cannabinoid space. Mm-hmm. And can you give us a sense for like the cost effectiveness? I would imagine that this is probably, or you're aiming to make it much more cost effective just in terms of speed and, and literal cost to make, you know, a kilogram of product compared to growing plants and extracting from the plant. Right. So the way we think of cost is really about, you know, it needs to be at a cost that makes it available and affordable for the applications that it's going into. Right. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that's kind of driven by, you know, the efficacy of it as well. Like, you know, people are basically like at the end of the day, people are paying if you're, if you're in the non-pharmaceutical space. So if you're in consumer products, as an example, people mm-hmm. are paying, you know, for the, the effect of that thing. Right. So, um, and they're paying, you know, dollars per effect yeah, yeah, <laughs> is yeah. one way to think about it. And so, you know, most, you know, in the consumer product space, like if you're talking about kind of like medium to high end cosmetics that might sell, you know, call it in the 60 to a hundred dollar range, you know, most brands are only going to pay at most like $5 of that hundred is going to be the ingredients that they use. Hmm. Right. And so you've got to be able to have, you know, a, be able to, you know, generate, you know, a, an effect that's positive for the consumer in that $5 kind of range, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how we think about pricing. And so, you know, for a lot of these products, yeah, the rare ones are really hard to get from plants. CBG, you know, there are definitely very smart, talented plant breeders out there that are, you know, starting to, I think, make, you know, hemp strains that are making mm-hmm. significantly more CBG and the price of that's coming down. Um, and so, you know, we've got to be competitive with that, at least mm-hmm. is kind of the way we think about it. Interesting. So, um, any other cannabinoids you can tell us about specifically that you think are interesting that, you know, not necessarily either ones that you guys have produced or that you're thinking about producing, um, you know, off the top of my head, you mentioned some of the big ones. So CBG, CBC, people are talking a lot about CBN, which isn't actually produced by the plant. And then there's these new ones that I've been starting to hear about that are present at very low quantities, but potentially have very high like receptor binding affinities like THCP. Are you guys looking at any of those? Yeah. So a lot of those other ones are kind of tinkering around like (laughs) with the tail of Mm -hmm. the cannabinoid, right? You think of the two ring structures, it's got a little tail that hangs out and and like THCP is, is a different length tail Mm -hmm. basically. And yeah, that does seem to impact, you know, both the, the, affinity for different receptors and the diversity of receptors that these things hit. So again, it's changing the shape of the molecule in a way that, you know, I think to us at least initially was, you know, a little bit surprising that you just change it a couple carbons at the end of that tail and you have a much mm-hmm. tighter binding thing. But that's one of the things biology is always full of surprises. There's a lot of stuff you don't even know you don't know. <laughs> um, and so there's definitely um, a lot of interest in, in, both inside Demetrix and in the field in general and how other variants of, you know, even some of the common ones like CBD, CBG, THC, how those different variants might change how they interact with your body. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we've definitely like of the, you know, 10 plus different cannabinoids we've tested in a bunch of these assays, 
some of them are definitely some of those variants that have changes on that tail length. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, some of those are present in really small amounts in the plant and it makes them, you know, particularly hard to get through the agricultural kind of supply chain and are places where we think there's there's real opportunity. There's another kind of flip side to this that we can also do that that's, you know, allows us to make kind of what we call new to nature cannabinoids too. So mm -hmm. one of the things that we can do with yeast fermentations is we can feed them, not just sugar, but some of the other precursors to kind of the cannabinoid pathway. Mm -hmm. That and those some of those precursors might be things that aren't found in nature that chemistry can make, right? Human chemistry can make. And so then you end up with a cannabinoid scaffold that has, you know, let's say it has a tail that has, you know, some non-natural structure to it that you are able to put into it because you can feed yeast these chemical precursors that you could never feed a plant, right? Mm -hmm. So we can make new to nature cannabinoids as well that, you know are you know mostly going to have applications in the pharmaceutical space and not so much in like consumer space but um are also something that you know we're pretty excited about being able to do wow so you you're literally engineering you know frankenstein yeast but then you can also give them uh precursor molecules so that you're creating brand new never before seen cannabinoids yeah we don't like calling them frankenstein yeast <laughs> <laughs> um but, you know a lot of the products and this goes back to you know a great question that we often get is, you know, I think it's really important to understand that, you know, there are a number of products in the world today that people use that are coming from, you know, highly engineered microbes mm -hmm. that people have worked on for, you know, a long time to get to make products that um, are, you know, without that technology really wouldn't be available to people. So I think one of the, you know, my favorite kind of new ones to talk about is like, they're called human milk oligosaccharides, right? So these are, um, you know, sugar molecules that are found only in human uh, mother's breast milk, right? Mm -hmm. And they're thought to, um, and, and have been shown to have a role in um, the developing immune system by mm -hmm. supporting, you know, beneficial, like microbiome in the, the, the infant's gut, and then also have indications that they're also important for, for brain development, right? And so um, these are now made through by, there's, both made and being developed by some of the, the biggest companies out there like BASF, DSM, DuPont, and others are making these human milk oligosaccharides through fermentation and including them in infant formula to now, you know, provide benefits to infants that used to only be available through, um, through breastfeeding and now available through, through formula. Right. So, um, you know, that's a good case where, you know, if people were saying, Hey, these are Frankenstein yeah, you know, yeah. yeast or bacteria, people would be like, Oh, no way. Like keep me away. But they have, you know, they're, they're not that scary. They're, they're not things that, you know, if they get out into the wild are going to take over the wild population because, you know, basically what we're, we're doing is in the case of yeast, right. Yeast are normally make, taking sugar to make carbon dioxide, ethanol, and more cells. Mm -hmm what our job is as kind of like the, on the strain engineering side is to make those cells make less ethanol make, you know, and, and make more of your product. And oftentimes that comes at the cost of them making fewer cells mm -hmm. as well. And so the interesting thing about that is if you were to, you know, kind of compete in a growing experiment, these engineered yeast versus a wild yeast, they would that lose. wild yeast just crushes it. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, after a couple, you know, even days, those, you would not even be able to detect any of your, you know, engineered yeast in the worst case scenario. So, and, and this is, I think where 
a lot of these companies, including us, take their responsibility mm-hmm. to, you know, we're here to try to make the world a better place. We, you know, are very conscientious and work with the regulatory agencies to help them understand what we're doing, both on, you know, what are the molecules we're making, but, you know, how biotechnology in general is, is, is generally a very safe activity that doesn't, you know, have dangers that if one of these things gets out, you know, the, the world's going to get high on THC because there's a yeast cell out there making THC that everybody's just inhaling or whatever. <laughs> so how did you, uh, how did you first get into yeast biology? Oh, that's a great question. So, um, so when I was, an, so I was an undergraduate student at the university of North Carolina, and I was in an undergraduate lab there that worked on these things called motor proteins. And so one of the, another really cool things in cells is that, you know, there, there's tons of these little machines, like enzymes, like proteins are, are in there. A class of them are just little machines that actually like use what's called ATP, which some people call like the current energy currency of the cell. It's, it's just adenosine triphosphate to uh, generate to use the energy stored in that molecule to actually change shape and move, right? So there's like motor proteins like dynein and kinesins and other things, actin um, motors that that um, that actually change shape and move as they take in ATP and then make it into ADP or either ADP or AMP and release that phosphate. Those phosphates contain really high energy bonds, and I was always fascinated by how enzymes and cells like do the things that they do and how, how, how does that work? That sounds just so cool. And so that kind of drove me to look when I was going to grad school to say, you know, where are some of the, you know, best places in the world that kind of study those types of things. And UCSF was one of those and got into UCSF and you do these things called rotations where you rotate Mm -hmm. through a bunch of different labs um, and, and try, you know, get a feel for, how that science is done in that lab and what your interests really, where they lie and everything. And so went through a couple different labs. Um, one of them happened to be a yeast lab that was studying how do yeast cells grow and divide and had some really cool technology for ways to um, kind of really start understanding that in yeast cells. And yeast was just so much fun. It's so easy to deal with compared to some of the other things. So, so I also worked in like a Drosophila lab, which is fruit flies. Fruit flies are really hard to take care of. <laughs> it turns out like you've got to, you know, feed them and, um, you, you know, it, it, you feed them actually, you know, uh, like grapefruit juice with yeast blended into it. Um, and, and they're just, they're hard to deal with. They're they're You can't freeze them because, you know, if you freeze them, they die. <laughs> and so you can't defreeze them. Um, and yeast was just so convenient and has, you know, so many, like there's been just a tremendous number of kind of fundamental discoveries about cancer, about all sorts of things, how, how biology works in these model organisms like yeast. Um, and it was just, it, it just seemed like a great tool to understand how some of the science works. Mm-hmm. And so got started on that. Um, as a grad student. And then when I went to do a postdoc, we worked on both human cells and also what are called Xenopus oocytes, which are frog eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, and frog eggs are some of the biggest kind of single cells that you can actually see. They're millimeter size scale things, but they're still single cells. Um, and, you know, human cells and other kind of higher mammalian cells are just harder to deal with than yeast too. They grow a lot slower. So a human cell divides about once a day, whereas the yeast cell divides once every 90 minutes. Um, and so you can just do a lot more with yeast. And so then I heard about, you know, through 
some grad school folks connections and postdoc connections that there's, you know, companies out there in the world that are actually using yeast to make products that can make the world a better place. I was like, that sounds like a lot of fun. I should go see what that's about and checked it out and was really quickly hooked. And so this is, this is fun. I, this is what I want to do. So, so it was actually in graduate school that you started to understand that you were interested in industry. It was more, yeah. I mean, it was a mix of grad school and postdocs. I mean, grad school at the time, you know, was, and this was, you know, a thing that I think is still evolving. There's, there's a lot of, um, at the time, you know, it was focused on training you to be, you know, a professor mm-hmm. and, you know, some of the alternative careers that might people might pursue, whether it's like law or industry or science policy or a whole bunch of other things were, were a lot less emphasized than they are today, which I think mm-hmm. is a great thing. Um, and it really came when I was a postdoc, you know, kind of seeing, you know, when you're a postdoc, you're doing an independent research project in somebody else's lab. And, and usually the path there is that you then, you know, start your own lab at a different university doing some of that work and just seeing, you know, the job searches and how competitive it was, you know, we, we'd see, you know, 250 applicants for a single yeah. you know, position as a professor. And, you know, then you get down to 10 people that are interviewing and one person who's actually getting the job. And it was also, you know, also a bit, you know, isolating in academia. Cause it's like, it's your project. It's your thing. There are other people around you that are working on similar stuff, but not identical. And then I got, you know, kind of a friend, a postdoc in, in the lab. Um, his name was Zach Serber, um, you know, went and joined Amherst cause he knew some of the founders there really, really well. Mm-hmm. And they kind of enticed him. And I said, you know, he was like, you should come too. And I said, well, you go try it out and see how, how it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I think that was like in September, 2007. And, you know, by um, October, November, I interviewed at Amherst and, and was like, yeah, this sounds like a fun thing to try. So um, that was, it was a, a good opportunity to, you know, see how, and I think the thing that most people found as they move into industry is it's now, it's not your project. It's the project of, you know, tens, twenties, or even a hundred people mm-hmm. that are working on the same thing. And that makes the science go a lot faster and it's a lot more collaborative and there's a lot more kind of idea exchange. And mm-hmm. so um, it's also sometimes more applied. And so the stuff like the, the output of all that at the end of the day is like real tangible benefits to people, which, you know, basic science has real tangible benefits too, but they're, they're, they're hard to touch. They're, they're not as yeah. tangible. Right. So a lot of people found that, find that really rewarding and, and myself included. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you this, you're the CEO of, D- yep, I'm the CEO of, of Dimitrix. So, you know, you have the scientific background and then you spent a number of years in, in the private sector. So that's sort of your, your two pronged, yep. uh, training for being a CEO. Does it, did, did you ever imagine yourself becoming <laughs> someone like this? Or do you think it's, does it feel weird being a scientist running a company or is it actually a natural fit in some ways? Um, so a, a bit of all of that, actually. So, you know, I think that there are, um, certainly the job I have today is very different than I necessarily thought it would be. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some of the, you know, the personal challenges of being, I think a scientist CEO <laughs> is that you don't actually get to do a lot of the science anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, like I haven't been in the lab in a really long time and people in the lab probably shouldn't let me in the lab at this point. <laughs> 
because <laughs> I don't know where anything is or, or uh, so I kind of, you know, that's, that's different, but, you know, and, and, you know, to a certain degree, being able to do some of that lab work and, and, you know, getting excited about, you know, Hey, I set this experiment up tomorrow. I get to see the results is something that I definitely miss. Mm -hmm. Right. But the, the parts that I think are exciting is that, you know, you're also like, as you know, a CEO or even you know a, a senior leader in the company, you're able to, you know, a lot of the hard parts of getting science in industry done is actually related to you know how do you get teams of people to work together and then across different teams to drive the science and technology forward as fast as possible, mm -hmm. and the people aspect of that was just fascinating to me. Like mm -hmm. people, each person's an individual puzzle. Like how, how do you best, you know, get them, you know, to, to do their best work and get them to be able to do things that they never even thought that they could do. Mm -hmm. Like that side of it kind of really drew me towards like, Hey, the people side of this stuff is just as interesting and oftentimes just as hard as the science that we're mm -hmm. trying to do. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of what, you know, I do now is like, you know, organization and team and, and how do you get these, the people working together and how do you, you know, say connect, you know, what they're doing in the lab to, you know, the impacts that they're having on the broader business. Like that stuff is hard and challenging and fun. Mm -hmm. um, and so that part's, you know, really rewarding and, and very different than I imagined doing. I think that's the answer to what my next question was going to be, which is, you know, what's the, what's the most interesting you know, so much of science is driven by what you're interested in. I was going to ask you, what is the most interesting part of your job that's not the science? That's not the science. Yeah, I mean, um, boy, there's a lot of interesting things. Um, I think that especially being in the cannabinoid space, mm -hmm. there is just like, I find it so exciting to try to, you know, to, to be able to talk about the science of you know, what we do and also what cannabinoids are and what they can do. And, you know, there's a lot that's not known and, and that there's stuff that we're starting to understand. There's stuff the world's starting to understand about what these things are, are good for and how, how they're going to have positive impacts for people talking about that stuff. And, and, you know, both, you know, so helping, you know, talk about that and educate regulators, investors, you know, consumers, um, big CPG companies, like all that sort of stuff is, is fun. Like ability to talk about science in a way that people can kind of grasp some of the basics that aren't necessarily scientists and see mm -hmm. why it's cool and why it's excited and get people excited about that is also something that's super fun and rewarding. Interesting. So what, um, do you have any general advice that you would give to like graduate students or postdocs who are in academia that might be thinking about moving into the biotech world or anything like that? Yep. Um, so my first thing would be to try it. So there are um, a lot of universities now are starting to have like, you know, industry um, internships that they mm -hmm. provide for grad students and, and sometimes postdocs too. That is a fantastic opportunity to try it and get a taste of what it's like. Um, and so, you know, I would encourage people to, you know, the things that I think that most people hooked on the science that goes on in industry or in industry positions in general is, you know, that um, you're, it's, it's a lot less of, and this is also a big transition that people have to make. It's, it's not like your project anymore. It's like mm -hmm. um, 
it's like there's five or you know 10 or 100 people that are working on the same thing and that makes the science go a lot faster but you know it's also means that you've got to let go of this feeling mm -hmm. like this is my yeast strain or this is my experiment it's it's not there's lots of people that touch that now mm -hmm. and so it's like the things that i do have a lot more kind of impact which is both good and also something that you know people need to to learn about um and so experiencing what industry life is like is kind of the best way to get a taste for that and to understand if that's what you want to do. There are so many other places where scientists can have impact in the world, though, that I would also encourage each individual person to think about what are the types of things I'm interested in. And if I don't even know, ask people about what are the places that I can go after graduate school or after a postdoc, because they range from, you know, going to Washington, D.C. and doing science policy to, you know, going to a law firm or going to law school and talk about, you know, intellectual property or other types of law. Um, there's, you know, there's just so many different applications of, you know, the training that you get as a grad student on how to think analytically and scientifically about problems that mm -hmm. you can have impacts in all sorts of places. And the more you try, the more likely you're to find the place that you find is the right spot for you. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of IP, I, I imagine a lot of the value for a company like this comes from the IP you guys are generating. And I would guess that a lot of that has to do with the methods you're developing for how a particular yeast strain can be engineered to tolerate and produce a particular type of compound. Is that accurate? Yeah. So there's kind of like three big buckets for um, how, how to think about IP from this type of company. So um, one is, you know, the individual enzymes and pathways that you use to make these products in the cells, right? So that's one, that's kind of one level. The second level is kind of like methods of production. So there's like, mm -hmm. you know, fermentation based IP, there's downstream purification based IP. And then the last bucket is kind of like the applications IP. So once you have a product, what can you use it for? Mm -hmm. And so I think everybody, you know, all biotech companies are valued to a certain degree off their intellectual property. And it's a big focus of us and others to, to think about all three of those buckets. And then can you take us back, you touched on it a little bit, back to the origin story for the yep. company. So, so another scientist invites you out for coffee. Presumably <laughs> he had developed, you know, techniques specifically well-suited to the production of cannabinoids. But what sort of happened after that? How did you come up with the name? How did you decide right. to actually so, put it together? So good question. So um, so Jake Easling, who's a professor at UC Berkeley, you know, has is one of the kind of pioneers and one of the really well-known kind of folks that are, you know, basically engineering yeast cells to make natural products. Mm -hmm. So his lab is kind of was probably really well known for making artemisinin, which is a um, anti-malarial compound that's used all over the world and was funded mm. by One World Health and the, or basically was funded to, you know, make that at cost to, to decrease and stabilize the price of artemisinin. And so he's always been interested in saying, you know, what are kind of the, the natural products that exist out there that could be beneficial to people? Mm. And, and how can I use my lab to, you know, seed, you know, figure out whether some of these technologies can be used to make these things commercially relevant. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, around 2016, I think in Jay's lab, they, it was right around the time that CBD was going through, I think, phase three clinical trials in Epidiolex. Mm -hmm. 
And Jay, I think, looked at that and said, you know, hey, here's another plant-based molecule that's being used as a pharmaceutical ingredient and, you know, is probably going to be relatively expensive as most plant products are. And, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to see if we can get yeast to make that, mm -hmm. right? And so that's kind of the genesis in his lab. And, and he had a couple of students um, and postdocs working on that to say, okay, how do we get yeast to make these, these products? And they found, you know, they kind of found some of the, you know, a couple, one in particular missing enzyme in the pathway that, you know, is the thing that makes CBG um, or CBGA from the plant. It's a parental transferase. And, and so that was, you know, one of the key discoveries that they made at the time was they, they could all of a sudden get, you know, call it, you know, hundreds of milligrams of CBG out of a yeast cell where people before were probably making, you know, a milligram or less, right? So all of a sudden they found this thing that, you know, the way we used to talk about this, or Jay would talk about this sometimes too, is that, you know, what was in the kind of space before was kind of like, you know, uh, you know, called a moped or something like that scooter, right? And that what they had found was the jet engine that was really required to kind of get yeast to make these things at, at, a, at a high, high or commercially interesting level put mm -hmm. it that way and so that's what he kind of you know when jay had coffee he said you know look we've we found what we think is a missing enzyme here and think that you know cannabinoids in, in general are you know a broad class of compounds that are you know very very interesting and and th things that need to be studied more and be made more available so we could even study them and, you know, people will say, well, you know, what got you interested in the cannabinoid space then? Or how did, how did you think about this um, before you made the jump? And for me, it was like, you know, I've heard stories of people, you know, they go to, you know, Amsterdam or other places and go into the coffee houses and talk to people and see, you know, what their experiences are. And that was help, help them see that there's potential here. And for me, it was like, you know, the National Academies of Sciences had just re released like a 500 page report about the potential therapeutic uses of cannabinoids and what, the, you know, some of the science evidence <laughs> was for them being effective in those indications. And lo and behold, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here. There's a lot of implications for what these things can do. And there's just more science that needs to get done before these things can come to the market. But it's a huge opportunity to have you know, positive impact in the world. And why wouldn't you try to jump on that? Mm -hmm. Do you ever, so when you're doing a lot of the, the work downstream of the actual cannabinoid production, when you're looking at receptor binding activity and assays like that, do you ever, you know, there might be um, a, a kind of conflict I would imagine where in academic science, you sort of like get to tell everyone everything, yep. but in industry, <laughs> you don't necessarily get to do that. So are, right. are there times where, are there discoveries that you guys make that you publish in an open access way or anything like that? So I would say that there are stuff that we will eventually publish. Yes, mm -hmm. but we're not at that point yet. Um, and yes, that is frustrating at times. Um, but this is, I think, classic. Like a lot of folks that are in industry feel this way because oftentimes people in industry, you know, make discoveries or invent technology that then, you know, a couple of years later comes out through academia or other places and gets talked about as like, Hey, here's a giant breakthrough that we made. And the companies are like, yeah, we knew about that already. <laughs> and it's frustrating <laughs> not to be able to say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but that's, you know, the nature is it's a competitive industry and, you know, there are lots of people that are trying to do this at this point. And so we do, we're thoughtful about what we say and what we don't say. And yeah, that, that's, that can be extremely frustrating sometimes because it's like, you're, you know, 
I always want to err on the side of transparency because otherwise it comes off as, hey, you're hiding something here. Mm -hmm. and, and that never feels good to me. And it's also something that, you know, I don't think benefits, you know, the cannabinoid industry in general, like the more transparency and openness and, and clarity that people can provide about what these things can do and how they're safe and what, where they're effective. I think that's what the general space needs more of anyway. Mm -hmm. So how did you guys come up with the name Demetrix? What does that mean? So Jay Kiesling came up with that one. So it was after Demeter, who's the, or, um, who's the, uh, let's see, Demeter is the Greek God of the harvest. Mm. Right. And so, um, you know, the idea here was that plants make a whole lot of really interesting, rare natural products. And wouldn't it be cool to start a company that was focused on making those more available to the world? And it just so happened that the first class of products that looked really interesting were the cannabinoids. Hmm. Interesting. So anything, you know, what are you most excited about that's on the horizon? What, what would you say are the next sort of critical steps for this company? Yeah. So, you know, recently we announced moving to, you know, full scale commercial production, which is over a hundred thousand liters and, um, you know, getting that working and running and making, you know, so at that kind of scale companies in the space, could, you know, would be making, you know, kind of metric tons per year of product. Mm -hmm. Um, that's when you start actually having impacts in the world, right? Everything before that is just, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the, the footwork, the hard work that you have to do to get to that point. But that's the point at which, you know, you're starting to make enough product that's going to get its, it's make its way into the consumer's hands and actually start having the impact that you want it to have in the world. And that I think is, you know, hugely exciting. And, and it's also a big challenge, right? So getting fermentation scale up to work is a whole, like, there's, you know, decades and decades of experienced people out there who mm -hmm. have, you know, tried to do that. It's hard. It takes a lot of work and uh, is something that we're, you know, just really focused on. So getting that to work is really important. And then on the, the other side of that is, is both kind of lining up the um, customers that are going to be able to buy that much product, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to be able to sell everything we make. And so, you know, finding and getting, you know, those commercial um discussions to the point where people are then willing to, you know, sign supply contracts and such to take, to do that offtake is also, you know, one of the big focuses of the company over the next year. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, speaks to the quality of our, the strategy of like, if you can approach companies with some of the basic science of what mm -hmm. these things do and, and how, what applications they're good for and provide them real scientific data that says, look, these are what these things are going to be good for and how they're better than some of the ingredients you're already using today and how they're more sustainably produced, how they're, you know, all the, all the, all the advantages of fermentation, it makes that commercial approach so much easier and gets them engaged so quickly. Um, and, and that's kind of, you know, where we are today. And, you know, so from a, a year from now, when I say, you know, wh where do we want to be? It's, you know, that manufacturing facility is up and running and humming and doing really well. And we've got people, you know, buying the product and we've been through, you know, all the, the safety and regulatory stuff that we need to with the FDA. Um, and we've also, you know, continued to do innovation inside the company to bring, you know, additional cannabinoids up to the point where they're ready to go into that manufacturing facility. Mm -hmm. Like that's kind of, that's, that's the thing that's exciting and look forward to over the next couple of years. How, how big are you guys? How many people work here? So right now we're, you know, over uh, just a little over 60 people. Okay. Wow. Um, and so, you know, 
still, I would say moderately small, but, um, you know, continue to grow. Um, you know, in 2017, we were started off as like four, then five, then 11. And so, you know, one of the biggest challenges for any company is growing from 11 to 60 comes with a lot of changes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, people that, especially people there in the early days, you know, they're used to knowing everything that happens everywhere. And when you're 60 people, you can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, having people let go of some of that and adapt to that is, you know, is one of the natural challenges that every company that grows has to go through. Mm -hmm. What, um, what percentage of the employees are like bench scientists, like doing, doing actual oh, good science? So I'd say about 40 of the 60 are in, you know, are on the science or, you know, manufacturing side of things, which is still a lot of process development. Um, and then, you know, the other 20 are a mix of, and, and some of those 20, you know, we have, because of what we do is involves in the lab, at least a lot of automation and computing tools. We have mm -hmm. a, a bunch of software engineers that, mm. you know, work both on with the R and D team, but they work elsewhere with the manufacturing team and other where other places as well. So, um, it's a real mix of, of different disciplines. Mm -hmm. So w even within the R and D team, you know, we've got, you know, people that are yeast geneticists, we've got people who are, you know, what we would call like metabolic engineers who kind of understand broader physiology of how cells work. We've got, you know, high throughput screening groups that are, you know, how do you measure how much, you know, yeast cells are making of these products in really high throughput. We've got um, analytical chemists that are there to say, you know, how do we measure in high throughput, how much cannabinoid and other products these cells are making. We've got fermentation engineers, downstream purification engineers. There's just a whole broad swath of kind of technical experience that spans biotechnology, automation, and computing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting to, and also there's challenges in getting all those disciplines to kind of work together. Um, and, and that's, you know, one of the things that makes it fun and exciting too. Hmm. How much were you guys impacted by COVID? So <laughs> personally, <laughs> I think there's, you know, personal and professionally, right. So, um, personally, you know, COVID changed our lives just dramatically. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, I've got two kids, one, six, one, nine, and they, you know, more than a year ago, the school shut down. And then we, you know, basically the, the California and the Bay area went into a shelter in place. Uh, so shut down everybody, I think on the 17th of, of 2020. And so we were all then trying to, you know, work from home and teach from home and, you know, do a whole bunch of other stuff at home. Um, and deal with all the stress and, and concern and, un, you know, what's going to happen here that was just, you know, tremendously unbalancing for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, professionally, we're, you know, definitely shut down the labs and shut down everything for a while. Um, and, you know, then it was about, you know, in the summer of last year, how do you start stuff back up safely? And how, mm -hmm. you know, our approach has been, you know, the people that, can work from home and do their work from home have to work from home. Mm -hmm. The people that can, you know, go in the lab and need to do, you know, actual lab work and bench work to, to, you know, keep making progress. Those are the folks that we want in there and how do we organize the space and how do we organize, you know, schedules so that we minimize overlap with people and do this in a safe way um, that everybody in the whole organization feels safe with was, you know, 
took time, but we got there and, and, you know, haven't had any COVID cases inside or, or transmission inside. And so have been really fortunate from that front. Um, but it, it definitely has, especially on the science side has changed. And one of the cool things about science is you're in the lab, there's other people there, you, you have a cool result and you can turn to the person right next to you and say, Hey, here's a cool result. What do you think this means? <laughs> and there's like a, a trans there's like, you know, kicking around of ideas. And, and that's how a lot of innovation kind of comes about. And when everything's more structured and people aren't in the labs as much mm -hmm. as they were before, a lot of that communication like kind of disappeared and people mm -hmm. felt that it's like, mm -hmm. I don't have like that critical mass or those people that I can kick around those ideas with anymore. And so it's been about how do you figure out how to use, you know, zoom and other tools to kind of like bring that back in a way that mm -hmm. people get that, you know, feeling it's still not quite the same, but, you know, people have found ways, everything's become more scheduled and, and kind of like, but all that stuff is still starting to happen and, and has started happening and is important in keeping pushing the science forward. Interesting. Um, well, any final thoughts you want to leave people with Jeff before we stop? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I think that, you know, what would I say? So, so I think on a couple fronts, I, I think it's important. One of the things you touched on, you know, is what advice do you have for people <laughs> in graduate school mm -hmm. or in, you know, as postdocs or even considering going to graduate school? I mean, science, the training that you get in graduate school and, and science in general is just super cool. And if it's something that you're interested in, you know, there's so many different areas, like science is so big and broad that, you know, you will find a place and you should mm -hmm. try it and do it because it's, it's, you know, super rewarding, you know, to be first feeling like you're discovering something for the first time ever and nobody else in the world knows it. And you're now like a world's expert in something. And that is what graduate school is all about is making you that world expert in that thing and, and teaching you how to, you know, design experiments and, you know, test ideas and get to kind of deepen human understanding of the natural world. And that is super cool. And I would, you know, definitely encourage people to do that. That said, like there's what you do after graduate school is, you know, uh, there's a whole bunch of different opportunities and people should, you know, try as many of those different things to find the one that works for them and, and industry might be is right for a lot of people and it's probably not right for everybody and so try things out and find the place that feels right to you and that you know you get out of bed every day and say this is cool i want to keep doing this <laughs> um, on the you know cannabinoid side i'd say you know look what we're trying to do is you know take you know basically open the world up to the science and opportunity of cannabinoids and say, you know, this is what they are. This is what they can do. They haven't been studied before. Somebody needs to do sit down and really do a lot of the hard work of understanding science. And that's, what's going to ultimately let these things have the impact in the world that, you know, a lot of people actually think they can. And it's exciting to be part of that. Um, and we think it's a huge opportunity and it's, you know, amazing to think about how you can use biotechnology and yeast in particular to make these things more available and to then use that availability to, to, to drive that science forward and eventually make its way into people's hands as things that actually improve their lives. Um, so, you know, 
for me, what I find rewarding is, you know, science can have, science has positive impacts in the world. We've seen it with COVID, with COVID vaccines. It's just so much stuff that science around us and it's just so exciting and people should try it. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me, Jeff. This was really interesting. And Absolutely. Uh, I look forward to see seeing what you guys come up with in the next few years. Yeah, no, this is a super fun discussion. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's fun. 